the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Long-time listeners to this podcast will know that since we began in 2017, we've argued that politics is back, but that it's weirder than ever. People are angry, political claims and demands are proliferating, but we also know that politics is stuck. It seems that a lot of the political energy that was unleashed over the past decade, and which was directed at the establishment, has now been funneled instead towards culture wars, towards a sterile polarization, towards fighting over political symbols rather than about how society should be organized. My name is Alex Hochuli and I'm the host of this podcast. Co-hosts Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare are away today. In today's episode, I talk to Benjamin Studebaker about his new book. It's about the false hopes that U.S. politics sells its citizens and how, as the subtitle of his book has it, The way is shut. All right, I'm here with Benjamin Studebaker, who did his PhD in politics at Cambridge and wrote a book, which we're going to talk about today, The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut, which is, I have to say, um, before I even say hello to Benjamin, a book of admirable clarity. Um, It really sticks to that clarity of exposition throughout the book, which is a rare feat, I think, and, and a sort of art in its own right, I guess. I think it makes it a very enjoyable read. Hi, Benjamin. Hey, it's great to be here. That's great to have you. Um, and I it, did enjoy really reading the book, but I think I have to start off by, um, well, by throwing this at you that, you know, politics ultimately comes down to whether you think a fascist takeover is imminent or if you think the communists are going to take over. Um, and it's ultimately about what fantasy you buy into. And I'm not going to ask you which fantasy you buy into, but, um, you know, me as a smart person, I don't buy into any of that. Um, but I guess if you pushed me, I'd say that, you know, fascism is the more realistic threat just because it's probably on balance, just a bit easier to generate a kind of fascist-ish movement than a communist movement today, which I guess by default then places me on the left ever so marginally. So, you know, I have to throw that at you. What are you most scared of? Oh, I'm really not scared of either one. (laughs) Really not even a little. I think that's the right answer. Yeah, I was being facetious. But yeah, I think that's, um, I think that has to be a good, a good starting point, actually. Anyway, so, um, as a way of uh, have you maybe explain what your book is about, what is the unsolvable problem in U.S. politics? Yeah, so I think the unsolvable problem is this set of changes to the economy that have occurred over the last you know, 50 years or so, but really have their roots almost you know, immediately after the end of World War II with the GATT trade rounds. And the fundamental thing that is changing is that capital is getting more mobile. It's easier to move money and jobs from place to place. States, which are territorially based, can't move around and therefore have to compete with each other to attract these flows. And that gradually drags states in more and more pro-capital directions. And I think that uh, this has certain straightforward effects like, say, uh, outsourcing of jobs to other countries or, or people moving money into tax havens. 
but it also has a lot of less obvious effects insofar as states make policy to try to keep the tax money from going abroad, to try to keep the jobs from going abroad. And that involves wage suppression. It involves the restriction of labor rights. It involves weakening the trade unions. It involves weakening all of these things that we view as important for having functional, healthy working class. And as this capital mobility intensifies, the structural power of oligarchs and corporations gets stronger and stronger. So the more capital mobility grows, the more oligarchs and corporations can insist that it grow more, and that further weakens the forces of resistance. Right. So, I mean, that sounds like it's a book about globalization, but that isn't really the focus. I don't think, maybe you don't even use the term globalization throughout the book. I'm, I'm actually wondering whether <laughs> I came across that or not, because really it's about the way that U.S. politics is unable to respond to these economic transformations. And one thing that is interesting um, for readers who come to, to read it, and I do encourage them to do so, is that throughout the book, you're critical of hope hope for its role in keeping people engaged with the system. So you write that instead of politicians and media personalities who tell us our system is fine, we will increasingly have leaders who tell us they know how to save it. So this runs contrary to, I think, a lot of received wisdom on this question, uh, especially on the left, but hardly exclusive to the left, uh, that, you know, hope is the good thing. So why is hope a problem? Yeah, so I think hope is a problem because the American political system is extremely dysfunctional. It's very difficult in the American political system to do anything, in part because there are so many different offices that you have to control to make policy. So if, say, you were to elect a president who is interested in uh, some kind of multinational, uh, multilateral arrangement to reconstruct the international economic system in a way that manages the flows, in a way that makes them more governable. That person would not have a lot of credibility in any negotiation because anything that the president negotiates must go before the Senate and has to worry about also potentially being struck down by the Supreme Court and has to worry about whether the individual U.S. states will comply with whatever's agreed and whether if they don't comply, the court will make them comply. And all of these questions, the, the president can say, don't worry about them, don't worry about them. But our trade partners and our diplomatic partners are very likely to have questions about all of that. So it's very difficult, even if you get someone elected president who is committed to changing this thing, for them to actually change it. Then on top of that, if you pursue a unilateral strategy, if you try to break out of this system by severing trade links and trade ties, uh, by uh, controlling the flow of capital, by reinstating capital controls, uh, slapping down a bunch of really high tax rates. What will then tend to happen is that there will be a disruption to supply chains, inflation, a sense that the economy is dysfunctional, and then at that point, the government will struggle to stay in power. So it's very difficult to fix this system with unilateral measures or multilateral measures even assuming that you do have, say, a president elected who's interested in dealing with all of this. And of course, in point of fact, it's very hard to get a president elected who's interested in dealing with all of this, let alone all the other stuff that you've got to manage in this system. And what uh, has tended to happen is that people have tried to 
come up with rationalizations about how if you just changed a little bit here or a little bit there with American democratic procedures, if you made them a little bit more European, all of a sudden, all of these problems would go away. And it would become very easy to do all of this. But if we look at what's going on in European countries, European countries are having many of these same problems. They're being towed slowly but steadily in the same directions by the same overarching global forces. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll come to maybe some comparisons we can make with Europe more towards the end, though, I guess, with the European situation, the European Union is a way of locking in policy decisions, which the US doesn't have um, in the same way. And so it does have a little bit more autonomy, which makes it a more interesting political case, maybe. Um, But we'll come to that. Um, Before that, I just, you know, it's interesting, kind of related to this question of hope, and the amount of kind of investment people might have in the system. um, You at several points, I think, I point out that politicians make ever more ridiculous promises. And I wonder what the nature of these promises are, because uh, my understanding is that we live in a time of diminished expectations and that politicians have stopped really promising anything. And yet I encounter this idea in your book that politicians make ever more grandiose, ridiculous promises. And I think, well, maybe that's kind of true, but what is the nature of those promises? Yeah, the promises are often very vague and nondescript. So, you know, in the case of Barack Obama, it's hope and change, which is contentless and is then to be filled in later. In the case of Trump, it's I alone can solve. What does the solution consist of? Well, it's not entirely clear. The one thing that I I did think Trump was concrete about was an interest in doing something about trade. But then in practice, when he got into office, he found he couldn't really do anything much about that at all. And even the small things he tried to do were inflated into these gigantic uh, measures when, in fact, they made only very, very marginal revisions to Mm. the global uh, trade system uh, and mainly had the effect of increasing U.S. trade links with other states in the Asian Pacific region apart from China, like, for instance, Vietnam. So there are big promises that do get made. They don't have a lot of content. It's hard to hold the politicians to account for the promises Once the politician gets into office and finds that it's difficult to deliver on these things, there's a pivot into just trying to sell whatever you've got, because very quickly, the next election starts to come up on you and you have to flip and say, actually, look, I've done it. It already looks great. It's already the best economy ever. Because there's no real criteria to measure what is the hope, what is the change, what is the I alone can solve. uh, No, it's very difficult to actually evaluate anything that these guys do. Mm -hmm. And that's that's in their interest. I mean, I guess to look at kind of recent political history in the US, one example of a promise which seems neither, um, you know, terribly vague, um, nor um, extremely limited and inflated into being something bigger than it is, would be something like the campaign for Medicare for all. I mean, would you see that as a properly political promise uh, that was not delivered upon, obviously, and we can get on to why that was the case. But would that be an example of something which is a genuine promise. Yes, I think Medicare for all was genuinely concrete. Uh, I think if you were to say what's the missing content in the Sanders campaign, it's stuff to do with the global economic system. There was a lot of silences in that campaign about uh, will there be a reconstituting of, say, the IMF or the WTO? Will there be, uh, you know, there was criticism from Sanders of things like NAFTA and uh, TPP, but that didn't come alongside a um, overarching structural critique of the whole thing. 
Was he going to try to reintroduce capital controls? Was there going to be some kind of push for global minimum tax rate? A lot of that kind of stuff wasn't in the campaign. But yes, I would say that Medicare for all is a, is a discrete, concrete demand, as expressed by Bernie Sanders, maybe not some of the other people who have borrowed the phrase. Right. And I mean, so I want to talk a little bit about kind of your characterizations of the left and the right, um, both to a certain extent as mirror images of each other, but also having their own, I guess, particular contradictions and limitations. Um, one way that you describe the dynamic on the left, which I think touches very uh, directly on this question of why Medicare for all never saw really any kind of uh, advance, um, is that, well, I'm going to quote actually from the book, uh, the party establishment welcomes criticism from Bernie types. It's because the Bernie Kratz present themselves as internal critics that anti-establishment voters trust them. Their status as critics makes them highly effective at managing dissent. Okay, so how does that dynamic actually work and play out? Yeah, so in practice, Bernie Sanders could raise enough money to give himself a competitive campaign. But when it comes to the down-ballot races, it becomes a lot harder to get that level of attention for every individual down-ballot candidate, especially because uh, as you have more and more candidates, they're competing with each other for attention. So it becomes very difficult to raise huge amounts of money for all the congressional seats and all the state races and governor races, all that down-ballot stuff. So what tends to happen is that there's a, a concentration of what resources and energy does exist in the blue cities. And specifically in these heavily gerrymandered districts in blue cities where Democrats regularly win 70% of the vote, where Republicans have no chance. And the idea there is if you can win the primary in that district, you've got it. You've got it sewn up. You don't have to worry about the Republican. So it's easier to win the race with less money, less resources. The cost of this is that you're going to run a campaign mainly focused around primary voters in very weird districts that don't look anything like the rest of the country. And that means that there's going to be an emphasis on the issues that people in those districts care about. And in practice, this leads to what I call in the book, McGovernization, a focus very heavily on social and cultural issues that matter to the what I call the fallen professionals, people who have gone to college but have not been able to secure the kinds of jobs and careers that they might have hoped for or expected when they made the decision to go to college. The campaigns in these blue districts in the cities cater to these things. In the course of doing that, they alienate and antagonize people who live outside of these districts. And what that does is it allows the left to win a handful of seats in these districts at the expense of costing it its national momentum, costing it national enthusiasm. So you end up with half a dozen or a dozen members of Congress vaguely associated with the Bernie Kratz thing. And there's nowhere near enough of them to do anything. And because there's nowhere near enough of them to do anything, they're in danger of looking completely irrelevant. They're immediately accused of being irrelevant by everybody on the center and by all the establishment media. So they start trying to prove that they're not irrelevant. And they do this by talking up small stuff, talking up discursive interventions that don't have any kind of consequence for anybody, talking up uh, little achievements that they get by making big concessions to the establishment of the party. They try to make themselves relevant by you know, getting viral on social media. 
And increasingly, they're louder and louder and louder about a smaller and smaller set of increasingly pointless things. And the main meaningful thing they do is tell everybody to vote for Democrats every time there's a general election. And that, over time, I think has a very beneficial effect for the Democratic Party establishment, because over time, it discredits the left as an alternative, and it uh, generates a docile uh, appearance of dissent that makes the party look more dynamic than it is. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing uh, <laughs> viewing it from afar how the kind of left wing of the Democrats or the DSA just abandon any leverage they might otherwise have on the Democrats by um, just kind of running behind them to the polls every time. It's interesting. I, I wonder what, what you kind of what your read on the situation is now. I mean, the New York Times, I think, had a piece recently on uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being kind of critical of her sort of along these terms. Um, and, you know, there's obviously a big demoralization on the US left after the kind of excitement of 2015 to 2020. Um, and which is, you know, shared in m many Western European countries as well. And what, I wonder what your read on it is now in terms of that demoralization? Is this like, because uh, your book talks a lot about these cycles of activation and deactivation of political enthusiasm and then retreat. Um, and whether you read this in a kind of cyclical sense as well, or if you think something profound has happened, or maybe you look back at that period and just go, actually, that was something which will be quickly forgotten about and history won't even write about it. Well, I think that over the course of people's lives, as they place their hopes in different political figures. They get disappointed and let down. And this gradually over time numbs them to the possibility of hope. They become less motivated by it, less interested in it, less compelled by hope narratives. And there tends to be a move toward fear. So if you're not able to get people to show up and vote by telling them, hey, we're going to do Medicare for all, you get them to vote by saying you've got to vote to save democracy from the fascists. And this narrative of, of fear delays the withdrawal from politics that would otherwise occur on the basis of the collapse of hope. Now, I think as you keep banging the drum about fear and the thing that you're meant to fear doesn't materialize, that can happen a second time with fear. So just as we can get over hope, we can get out of fear and move into despair. And the function of the whole book is to kind of move you from, if you're still in the hope mindset, out of that, if you're still in the fear mindset out of that and into this feeling of despair, into this feeling that the American political system really is not capable of solving any of the important problems that we have today. Uh, it's really not capable of delivering any kind of fundamental change. It was created by those who are dead, the founding fathers, and they keep it. They've structured it in such a way that it's very difficult for it to evolve or change. There hasn't even been a constitutional amendment since Around the time I was born in the early 90s, you're not going to change the procedures in any kind of fundamental way. Even if you did, it wouldn't be enough. Even if you instituted European style, social democratic procedures, it wouldn't be enough. So I think there, there is a point at which we can get people to despair. And when we get people to despair, I think for most people, what happens is there's a dropping out and there's a move into these enclaves, what I call the four Fs these zones that appear to be non-political, these alternatives to politics. Uh, but the tendency is to try to repoliticize each of those zones. So if you have deactivated voters who are hiding in the four Fs, which are faith, family, fandoms, and futurism, you look for ways to go into those if you're a politician or you're a part of the political class. 
you look for ways to go into those zones and make them political, make the people in those zones worry that if they don't take political action, those zones will be destroyed. So you create a hope or a fear narrative about those zones rather than about politics proper. But of course, in politics, just as it's not capable of solving the overarching problem, it's not really capable of making these zones work or sustaining them. Uh, it will grind them down over time and make them worse and worse without actually delivering anything truly wonderful or transformational. And this is true whether you view these things in a more conventional sense, if you're interested in, say, traditional religion or the traditional family, or if you're interested in you know, newer kinds of you know, continental European philosophy infused religion or newer kinds of uh, alternatives to the traditional family structure. It's true if you're someone who goes into fandoms from a more conservative angle of wanting some kind of unitary traditional 80s Star Wars, uh, or someone who comes into them from a more progressive angle and wants uh, new stories that are more inclusive and diverse. Uh, it's true in, in futurism. If you start looking to cryptocurrencies and Elon Musk, uh, you know, these guys are going to let you down. Uh, and so what I think there might be some possibility of is that we get to a point where we despair about all of that too. And if we can despair about all of that, then we get to a point where either we have to come up with something to live for, or we have to start killing ourselves. And at that point, uh, that becomes, you know, the only way to survive at scale is to come up with something new. And I would like to get us to a point where we are so over all of these dead ends we start to think about new ways of doing things, really new ways of doing things, not just rehashed versions of 20th century dead movements that don't go anywhere and don't work. Yeah, or indeed fear of 20th century dead movements, um, which is where we started. Let's get into this question of despair. I wanted to come to it much more towards the end, um, but and maybe it's now you've raised it, so let's, let's do it. Um, you lay out in a very kind of systematic way the way that hope and fear work. And I mean, on this podcast, regular listeners will know that we've been regularly talking about the politics of fear and uh, what is closely related to it, emergency politics, and the way that both left and right avail themselves of um, claims of emergency all the time nowadays, as a way to motivate their bases and, and other voters. But um, this question of despair is more arresting. It's something that I'm, you know, I'm already mentioned that the hope question that you introduced, the way that hope is um, mobilized, I think that's quite interesting. Maybe it's something which is a little bit more present in, in U.S. politics, just because of the kind of red rhetorical styles or whatever, um, and that maybe I hadn't quite cottoned on to the role that it plays along with fear. But despair, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of, you know, you're, you're saying we need to reach rock bottom, right? We have to kind of abandon all hope, all expectation that this system will deliver something. Um, which sounds like, um, well, you know, it sounds, I guess, like you're pushing towards a revolutionary or some sort of insurrectionary outcome. And you're dismissive of that as well. So I wonder how, how you see the kind of despair of existing solutions playing out. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, when they despair about electoral politics, get into some kind of LARPer revolutionary politics that involves, you know, going back to reading Rosa Luxemburg and Vladimir Lenin. Uh, and you know, various anarchists from the 1800s and imagining that somehow we're in a similar situation now, that this is like 1848 or it's like you know, the, the late Soviet period and that there's going to be some kind of cataclysm that you can just wait for. And I, I want to emphasize that in the United States today, there is just really no potential for any of that. Uh, 
I think it's way, way overestimated the degree to which people are willing right now to go out into the streets and be killed for any other type of political system because no one has really formulated an alternative political system that is compelling to the ordinary American. And this is the creative act that is necessary before any kind of return to revolutionary politics is possible. We need to formulate some kind of new political system that doesn't carry the baggage of the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany or the, you know, uh, some of these third world Marxist movements like uh, you know, the Khmer Rouge or uh, you know, religious movements like uh, you know, the Ayatollah's regime in Iran. None of this stuff is compelling to the ordinary American, and, and rightfully so. All of those regimes completely fail. In politics, if a regime is dead, it died for a reason. It died because it could not solve the problems that it faced. So we need to get completely beyond anything that even smacks of analogy with any of that. We need to put all of these historical analogies that everybody's constantly in, we need to shoot them all in the head and move on from them and come up with something genuinely new that is a response to the conditions that we have. And so that's that's why I really go after revolution. I think there's a lot of rehashing forms of revolutionary politics that are based on the 1800s or the first half of the 20th century or the Cold War, and they're all just as defunct as the ordinary kinds of reformism that we talk about. And this moving back and forth between the Sock Dem reformism and the Larper Leninism, it needs to it needs to die. Both of those need to die. All the 20th century stuff needs to go. Man, there goes my hopes for an American Pol Pot, but um, oh well, I'll have to find something new. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it's right. And to a certain extent, the, the relationship between kind of martial politics and the experience of war and revolution is um, too often understated. And, you know, people's willingness to die for a cause, I think, is what is missing from that puzzle. Um, I'm not suggesting that that needs to, well, I think it probably is quite important. I think there's probably no way of getting around that. But um, in a situation which you have a very professionalized army, um, I mean, the US still a, a sizable proportion of the population serves in the military in contrast to, to what is the case in Western Europe. But, you know, nevertheless, it's still quite small. And I think that the lack of that experience means that it's it's one of the many ways in which we're very much not in the 20th century. Um, I want to come back to the despair point um, and revolution and various other th these ideas of um, and in your proposal that we need something entirely new. Um, but we'll come to that, I think, towards the end because um, it might be worth talking through some of the other ideas in your book. Um, firstly, a little bit on the right, on conservatism, and you make a distinction between small c conservatism, something that I think you come across as sympathetic to in the book, and big C conservatism and the role that the media plays in turning uh, conservatism into the very things progressives accuse it of being a social group that is constituted principally by the desire to deny other social groups the affirmation they seek. Okay, maybe you can spell that out for us. Yeah, so one of my overarching arguments is that capitalism and the system of capital mobility degrades us psychologically over time. It degrades our psychological capacities and therefore our ability to act strategically, act in a politically effective way. Uh, and it does this by subjecting us to enormous psychological stress, which makes it easy for us to be turned on each other, to be made to blame each other for the situation instead of arriving at some kind of structural critique and then coming up with a way of solving or resolving that structural problem. So. I think the right is often, uh, you know, certain parts of, of the conservative right have a point that there are a lot of qualities 
that people tend to acquire as a result of living under capitalism that are bad for them and bad for the political movements they participate in. Uh, insofar as people get really stressed out and they start acting purely on the basis of their desire without really uh, you know, having the energy or the reserves necessary to qualify that desire, to think about whether it makes sense to act upon it in that particular way. We don't want a politics that's just libidinal id uh, with no, no qualification and no, no strategy. At the same time, whenever you start to talk to people on the right about how to deal with all of that, it tends to become self-improvement projects. It starts to go in that Jordan Peterson direction of mm. you know, clean up your room and make your bed and you know, just get good, just try harder. Uh, and this is a complete abandonment of the structural critique that you initially start with when you say something like, you know, consumer culture is destroying a people's virtue and it's making them prone to sin. Okay, but then if you're not going to approach consumer culture in a structural way and you're going to blame everybody individually for the fact that they you know, buy avocado toast, that's not going to produce any kind of useful politics. And the argument I make is that you know, both the parts of the left and parts of the right have interesting critiques of all of this. But what tends to then happen is that it gets sucked up into these media machines. The left and the right have increasingly just become businesses media businesses that are focused on generating engagement rather than generating effective political strategy. And the way that you do this is by getting people to blame other people for the situation, get them angry, get them outraged, get them interested in stories that either make them feel outraged or are cathartic insofar as the person who they blame or the group that they blame is humiliated or made to cry or made upset, right? So Increasingly, that's what all the political content really does. It's not about uh, generating any kind of strategy. And this, over time, makes both the left and the right into movements that are mainly based on hate and antagonism uh, and not, not real political movements as such. And you think there's no class basis to that antagonism? Oh, there's definitely a class basis to that antagonism. So in the book, I make a, a point to talk about class. And I emphasize a, a difference between the traditional working class, which I define as people who don't go to college, and the professional class, which I split into the rump professionals, those who actually are able to have the lifestyle that they imagine when they go to college, and the fallen professionals who aren't able to do that. Uh, and then within the employers, I make a distinction between oligarchs who can actually benefit from capital mobility and small employers who are geographically stuck in particular places and don't have the ability to benefit from mobility to anything like the same degree. So the case that I make is that you get people who don't go to college, that includes workers, but it also includes a lot of small employers and petty bourgeois. Uh, people who don't go to college tend to be induced to adopt kind of right-wing uh, hate frames, blame the immigrants, blame racial outgroups, blame uh, religious outgroups. And then uh, at the same time, those who do go to college who are in that fallen professional group, they are induced to pride themselves on being better educated, even if they don't make more money or have a better uh, standard of living or more stable life, or don't have other markers traditionally associated with success in the United States, like having a house and having a spouse and having some kidlets and a white picket fence, right? Even though they may not have those markers or don't have them to any degree uh, larger than people who don't go to college, these fallen professionals will be told, hey, you're better than these other people because you don't participate in that kind of hate politics. Of course, this itself becomes a hate politics focused yeah. around hating the haters. 
So it becomes focused around hating the people who don't go to college and don't use the right kind of language and blame the wrong people. So they then are, through that mechanism, induced also to play a blame game and to not think in a structural way. pushing this maybe a little bit beyond where it should go, but between those, you don't really see, um, you know, between effectively the lower middle class, you know, petty bourgeois base of the right, and and particularly, I think, the populist right, and the base of woke liberalism. I don't know if, I, if I'm mischaracterizing what you're getting at, if I put it that way. Um, but nevertheless, you know, that, that kind of idea um, that between them, there is no um, class conflict, that they're just two faces of the middle class and um, there isn't anything there. Yeah, between them, there's there's really uh, nothing nothing much going on. I, I think there are there are some differences in terms of, you know, sometimes there are some economic differences in, ter- in the interests of the petty bourgeoisie versus the interests of uh, college-educated fallen professionals who are em- employees. There's some difference there insofar as the the small employer is an employer and not an employee, and therefore will uh, tend to have some different views about the labor market, and about wages, and about inflation. Uh, and for this reason, the Republican Party will emphasize inflation more than the Democratic Party will in almost mm. any situation. Uh, I also think there are some differences that we saw in COVID in terms of if you're a small employer, keeping your business open is the thing that really matters to you ultimately. Uh, and if you're someone who is an employee, well, if you can collect a, a PPP check, then you're not going to mind so much if the economy shuts down for a while. Or if you can work from home and your boss will be content, uh, you're not going to mind uh, a shutdown. So there are some differences that emerge from the different class constitutions of these groups. But I would not characterize this as a traditional working class versus the uh, you know, the bourgeoisie. That mm. kind of class conflict does not exist currently in the United States. Well, because I mean, there are people, and not just in the U.S., but also in Britain and elsewhere, who are trying to kind of characterize those politics and that political polarization as one which is polarized on class. That you know, you have the laptop class where the new elite against the, um, you know, well, kind of good, honest workers, but also with some small business owners, and that that is, you know, effectively trying, yeah, trying to create a class polarization out of that. You don't buy that. Yeah, most of the workers are completely out on all of this. You know, the traditional workers, a lot of them are, for one, there's a bunch of crazy conspiracy theories, some of which might code as right or left wing, but a lot of which are just crazy and out there that a lot of traditional workers are into these days because they aren't in labor unions, aren't organized in any kind of way where they can get decent political information and are trying to make sense of this stuff uh, without trusting the rump professionals. In both cases, it's rump professionals who make most of the content for both the progressive and conservative factions. It's rump professionals, people who went to college and succeeded, who make the content, and they get their money from oligarchs. In both cases, that's the root uh, material base Mm. for all of the media content. So I think for the most part, I I call them the American subaltern. I think most workers are at this point withdrawn. Uh, Voter turnout in the United States is always not very good. A lot of them don't vote at all. Or they're fringe voters. They vote for whoever seems funniest, uh, for whoever generates good memes or good content, uh, seems like an entertaining ride. Uh, There's a lot of flippant voting. There's a lot of despair. And there's a lot of just disengagement and not wanting to be involved. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, if, if you know, 50 to 40 to 50 percent of the population doesn't vote, then um, that obviously stands to reason that, you know, it all stacks up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's obviously the the role. I, I'm actually kind of even reluctant to raise this because I'm tired of it and I might bore myself in asking the question. Um, but to speak the language of the rump professional, um, which only the rump professional would understand, is the, you know, the role of the PMC. And I think um, I'm bored of this discussion in part because I think a lot of the when you say that term, at least to those who understand it, which is generally people who've gone to university, um, have radically different images in their head of who that means. Um, you know, for some, it might be someone like the head of the IMF. And for someone else, it's just a kind of a salaried worker, but and earns a little bit more or is more credentialed than someone else. I mean, I don't think you do you use this term in the in the book. I don't think you do. So I, I assume there's a reason for that. Yeah, I do not use PMC as such. I talk about the professional class. I make this division between rump professionals and fallen professionals. The main way I define professional in the book is someone with a college degree who still derives most of their income from employment. So it can be a salary, it can be a wage, but someone who is not getting most of their income from, say, family money or rents. So it's still someone who has a boss or who uh, it can be someone who's self-employed and has clients, but who is still getting most of their money from a job, a conventional job. So that can include people like, you know, a CEO who relies on a really, really high income. You know, that would be someone who's professional class. It can be someone who is a television presenter. It can be someone who uh, is an executive. It can be someone who is a, a, a tenured professor. It can be someone who works in, uh, uh, in STEM fields. It can be an engineer, can be a rump professional, someone who's made it uh, and, and is able to significantly benefit from the fact that they got a college degree. Their living standard is substantially higher as a consequence of it. That is a rump professional. A fallen professional is someone who's been to college and works a job, but doesn't get the benefits that you would traditionally associate with that. So someone who works a job that isn't substantially better than, say, a traditional steelworker job, where if you were to line up, you know, indexed for inflation and inclusive of all the benefits and pensions and so on, uh, what the steelworker in the 70s gets and you were to compare it to what this college-educated person gets, you would go, well, uh, you could make an argument that the steelworker has a better job and a better situation uh, if you take the assumption that the steelworker isn't going to get laid off in 20 years when the steel company moves abroad or automates it with robots. Uh, in a vacuum, a fallen professional's job doesn't look much better than a 70s steelworker job. Yeah, I mean, I, the, all this kind of um, brings to mind a point, which is that the um, decline of America, I guess, was felt by industrial workers 20, you know, basically a generation ago, um, and that now it's hitting the, the middle class, sections of the middle class, right? Um, and to a certain degree, I'm going to be unkind and say that your book is a, uh, and you can reject this and you'd be entirely right to do so, but <laughs> that your book is a kind of anti-globalization politics for the middle class, um, but in a very different way to maybe the way that that would have been understood in, in the 2000s. Um, and the middle class, I mean that in kind of lower middle class. Well, I do want to say that if it were possible to get together multilaterally and to reconstruct the global economic system, with rules that make it work better, uh, that make it work for ordinary people, that would be better than just deconstructing it with unilateral withdrawal. You know, I 
subscribe to the idea that multilateralism is better in principle than unilateralism. The reason the book tends to talk about unilateralism so much is that it's so difficult to actually get a bunch of different states together to do some kind of multilateral redesign. And this is something I think a lot of the left is just not really come to grips yeah. with. I mean, even within the European Union, how many of the Southern European countries Especially at any the given European time, Union, I would right, say. How many of those countries, right, at any given time, have a left-wing government that would be interested in fundamentally restructuring the European rules? Even if it's in the interests of you know, a substantial number of states, clearly in their interest beyond dispute, the number of states that actually have a government that would be interested in pushing for it at any given time is usually pretty small. And that's why most of the time when there's a crisis, you end up with one state that's caught out or two states that are caught out uh, and don't have enough friends to get together and do anything effective. Uh, and that's true even within the European Union, which is meant to be a set of states that are similar to each other, that have similar economic interests. So when you start trying to imagine, you know, how would the United States and, say, China get together and construct new rules for the road that they could both agree to, let alone that they could then get the European Union in on and you know, other, other states around the world in on, it's really difficult to see how you would do that. You know, I talk about two ships passing in the night. You could get a move, even if you can get a movement elected in each of these countries or in power in each of these countries that would be interested in doing this kind of thing, the chances of getting them at the same time or close enough to each other in time is very, very low. And that forces us to talk about unilateralism because it's just much more likely to happen that way. Yeah. No, and it's, again, a question of leverage, ultimately. Um, For listeners' sake, we're having an episode coming out sometime after this one comes out on the politics of sovereign default and where going al- going it alone um, often seems like the thing that has to happen and very often doesn't happen and look at why that is the case. Um, but to return back to national politics and the way politics plays out, I think one of the things that has been most disheartening for me, I think, just observing politics over the past sort of, I'm trying to think past three, four years has been the way that the evident repoliticization that's happened has been channeled towards culture wars. And I think this is obviously a, a concern of yours too, even if you put it perhaps in, in a bit different terms. One of the things I note in your description of both sides um, facing off at the US is the way that, well, let me quote, the um, politics moves attention away from the economy, instead focusing attention on the proliferation of vice. Where the conservatives are concerned with traditional vices, progressives are concerned with the vices of racism, sexism, and various phobias. Now, your language there is pretty deliberate um, in using the language of morality, um, individual behavior, concern with individual behavior in a pretty kind of Christian way. And I wonder why you chose to describe it in those terms. Do you think that it's still, um, the US is still, I guess, quite Christian and the to describe these issues in terms of sin and vice are, um, are, are get down to the root of what's going on. Yes, I do think they get down to the root of what's going on, in part because many people on the left are just first generation, you know, ex, ex, you know, removed from Christianity, just one or two generations removed from really quite intense a Christian conviction. I think that there is still a very, very large amount of this stuff going on in the States. Uh, even uh, if you look at, say, falling uh, church membership, there's a lot of people who have religious convictions who consider themselves very spiritual in a very serious way, who uh, may not identify with Christianity or may not themselves go to church, but would, would count themselves as spiritual. A lot of Americans who would 
who would say that they've rejected Christianity, who wouldn't even say that they've rejected spirituality or, or God as such. Uh, and even among those who do say that they have rejected God, you've got a set of people who are in the shadow of that concept in the Nietzschean sense, who are still very much doing politics in a way influenced by having grown up in that kind of milieu. So I think that stuff is still very much uh, going on in the States. And that's something that maybe looking at it from a European perspective is less obvious. We talk a lot, way too much, about how the United States is more racialized than Europe, but we don't talk as much about how it's more infused with theological emphasis. Mm. Yeah, and especially because it's a discussion that used to happen, but in a much more blunt way, like in the 2000s. Look at George W. Bush, look how you know religious he is, born again, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's a discussion which has faded with the decline in church membership. But yeah, as you hint at, that's probably more to do with atomization than it is to do necessarily with a decline in belief. Yeah, and also politicization of the churches to the point where a lot of people are frustrated with religious organizations because those organizations try to drag them back into politics in a way that they don't like. Many people go to faith to get out of politics. Yeah, that's and that's very interesting for me looking at it from Brazil, where um, we've had huge growth in evangel continuing growth in in evangelical churches, um, which have been very politicized, but already it's showing the signs of strain where a lot of churches even you know in the last election were kind of like sick of their pastors telling them to go vote for bolsonaro and that the communists are going to come take their children away and etc cetera, etc cetera. so um it's yeah interesting. at this point when you survey churches in the states the evangelical churches often have the lowest rates of uh, political participation now a lot of them are just totally out on it they're completely burnt out after all this time which is fascinating. Yeah, that burnout. I mean, it's something that a lot of people wouldn't have predicted. And actually, when you think back, like, well, actually, maybe you should have been a bit more skeptical. That's right. Um, anyway, that's that's all fascinating. But I'm going to put a pin in that. Um, because just on, on the question of culture war, because I think a lot of the, I mean, my tendency is to describe a lot of contemporary politics as culture war. Um, do you see it as a question of content or of form? Um, so does culture war only pertain to certain issues, certain types of topics like abortion probably is the most kind of, um, you know, archetypal one that there is, um, particularly in US politics, or do you see it more as a way of doing politics, you know, so that it could attach itself to any sorts of issues, but it could have a certain culture war framing? So I think there are a few different things that go into culture war. So one is, is this sense of a forever war, this sense of a, an issue that where you can't really win, where it's not clear what winning would mean, where even if you got what appears to be a win, that would immediately give way to just a new round of the same antagonism. So for instance, you fight a, a culture war to achieve gay marriage, you achieve gay marriage, and then immediately all of the activist organizations that were previously caught up in arguing for that pivot to arguing for something else that polarizes along the same lines. So the same issue is always current and always mm. in broadly a similar kind of way with maybe depending on which particular issue they pick, uh, shifting a little bit what percentages of people agree. But it's always there. You never get rid of it. Uh, and in part because there are so many people whose careers at this point rely on the issue continuing to be relevant. So it cannot be resolved in any kind of way. So I think there's a forever war aspect that's important. Uh, in addition to that, I also think it's it's worth emphasizing that a culture war issue never actually produces a living standard increase in material terms. So even if you win a culture war issue, that isn't going to make it easier for people to get houses or healthcare or education or energy uh, at scale. Uh, it might shift a little bit the distribution of something currently. So some people might get it rather than other people, 
but it, that, it's not going to result in any kind of broad uh, alleviation of the position of the working class or the position of the fallen professionals. They're not going to, as uh, an entire class, see any kind of improvement from advocating on the basis of the issue. So there's a, a sense that even if you could resolve it, it would be inert. It would not actually do anything. Uh, so there's a pointlessness with culture war in both of those senses that I think is really relevant. Yeah, no, I, I can um, I can see that. I think that, that sort of futility and um, attachment to symbols which try to perpetuate that politics as long as it's, as long as it's possible. So that's right. There is no, yeah, it's, a, no it's an industry. It's a business to do it rather than actually a robustly political class interest based struggle. And I think for a lot of participants, I mean, ordinary participants, not the sort of, um, as you call them, rum professionals who are leading this stuff through the media, um, but just ordinary people who participate and uh, align with one side or the other. I think there's a, both sides think they're doing class politics, not explicitly and not certainly not in those terms but i think there's a perverted form of class politics that they're thinking they're fighting for the ordinary man the ordinary good person somehow against the evil parasites at the top which actually ends up sounding like a kind of anti-semitic socialism of fools version of class politics but maybe that's appropriate too um at any rate there's some kind of um us here at the bottom against up there's them up there at the top and both sides kind of do this Yes, and this is because the working class has become subaltern in the United States. It's not able to speak. It no longer has organizations through which it can speak. The unions that still exist that are meaningfully influential are usually influential because they're in sectors where you've got professionals in them, uh, or you are dealing with sectors where you've got, uh, for some reason, some kind of structural or institutional advantage for the laborer. Uh, In most of the economy, the la- uh, workers don't have those kinds of advantages. So the organizations that used to organize them and attempt to speak for them, even if in a sometimes ineffective way through mediators that were not always trustworthy, uh, those organizations are basically gone. And so workers can't really speak in U.S. politics. And that creates an opportunity for rump professionals to market themselves as uh, subaltern whispers, as, as people who know what's really going on with the working class, people who, oh, I know how to mobilize the workers to come back to politics and vote. Because ultimately, the workers are not going to do very much apart from vote. Uh, the only sign that you really have that you've managed to reach them is that they've shown up and voted. And that becomes uh, a whole, uh, you know, within political science, I think there's an enormous, probably a, a whole, maybe subfield is too strong, but uh, a significant area of research interest in just how do you get these people mm-hmm. to show up, uh, uh, you know, and, and going out into, into, you know, kind of anthropologically in the old imperialist sense, going out and trying to understand uh, what is this community and how does it work and how do you actually get people to, uh, to do anything? A hillbilly elegy type running out into Appalachia and speaking to people and trying to understand what motivates them. Uh, and increasingly, it's just totally removed from what actually goes on. The people who are doing it have no actual connection to or roots in any of this stuff. And they, most of them don't really know. Of course, the trouble is even to talk about this is itself to engage in it. There's no way of talking about what do the workers really think or what do they really want without in some way engaging in precisely this thing. Mm -hmm. The system has no way of actually enabling them to speak. No, and I think probably there's an extra layer even to that now of, um, I guess some people call it popularism, um, where technicians of politics conjure up 
the people um, because the people might not be speaking directly um, or to the extent that they're speaking, they might be on social media saying random things. And then, you know, this notion of a of, of a people is conjured up. Of course, it's, you know, instrumentalized to suit whatever, you know, politics you're trying to see through. Yeah, we don't have a people in the United States. We never have. It's always been a bit silly to try to pretend that this country that has so much internal diversity can be spoken of meaningfully as a people. Uh, At the same time, we also don't usually have the alternatives to that frame that people will try to throw out. We don't have a patchwork of identity groups grounded in race uh, either. Uh, These different ways of trying to make sense of the country are all symptomatic of uh, rump professionals who have no real roots in uh, much of the country, who don't interact with anyone who doesn't go to college on a regular basis, uh, who would never attend uh, uh, or contribute to an organization that was actually run by people who didn't go to college, who would find any such organization uh, too troubling on too many different levels to get properly involved with it. Yeah, no, and I mean, the amazing thing about this situation is that it's incredibly noisy, but there's not that many people actually doing things. So, you know, it's not like people are members of unions, political parties, associations, and yet there's a whole lot of noise about politics. And that's, I think, one of the curiosities of our time. I mean, it's one of the kind of perplexing things and um, things that makes it kind of intractable as well, because um, this plays in very much to what you're talking about in terms of the way that your four F's, faith, family, fandom, and futurism, um, no longer provide any respite from politics. In fact, I made a note while I was reading it that actually you're, you're, what you're basically saying is that politics is just commerce and everything else now is politics. And that means that your usual spaces don't provide any respite from politics and politics itself is just perpetual kind of marketing. I mean, I've, I've referred to this as, as the politics of the Aperon. Um, Anton Yeager talks about it in terms of hyper politics. Um, and I think this is what creates so much stress and stress is something that recurs a lot as a theme as well in your book about stress and resentment and the kind of the ordinary stresses of life and how little space there is outside of that now. Yeah, I think from within the professional space, you know, we can look at, you know, it looks a lot like hyperpolitics. I think, and of course, this involves abstracting and looking out my window at Indiana. You know, from the standpoint of the workers, I think that this is like a, a kind of running away from someone who's menacing you. I have this section about a, you know, balloonists, where you have uh, these people who get in hot air balloons, uh, and they, they're the stand ins for the professionals. And they try to uh, rise up in their balloons. And initially, their motivation is to see what's going on. You know, they, they've grown up on the ground like you know, many other people have in, in many cases. Uh, and they can see that on the ground that things are terrible, but they don't understand why. So to try to get a sense of why things are terrible, they get in their balloons, right? And the balloon is, is education. It's you know, rising up into the elite. It's interacting with other educated, smart people, right? And as you get into the balloon, you think you can see, you know, safe places that people on the ground might go and things they might do that would be constructive, right? You call down to them and try to tell them what to do. And when you're not too high up, you can hear some stuff from them down there and you might be able to interact a little bit. But what will tend to happen uh, is that you'll, you'll try to get higher up into the air over time. And you're incentivized to go a little bit higher up because the higher up you can go, you know, the more people can see your balloon and the more people you're going to be able to reach. And uh, perhaps the more people you reach, the more money you tend to make. So the further up you go, uh, the more 
you become interested in just looking around and seeing what, what are the other people in balloons doing and comparing your balloon to their balloon and seeing who's got the nicer balloon. And uh, you can still shout down to people down there, but increasingly it's hard for them to hear what you're saying and you can't really hear what they're saying. Uh, increasingly, you can't see really in any detail what's going on for them on the ground. So you get to a point where you're just way up in the sky and you're really talking to nobody except other people in balloons. And at that point, you've become pretty much useless. Nobody really follows you and you, you're kind of past it. But it doesn't matter because you aren't important. You know, the people who fund the balloonists can go find somebody else on the ground and give them a balloon and start the whole thing over again. Uh, and you get to a point where if this goes on long enough, you can imagine people on the ground would just start to become really suspicious of people in balloons. Uh, and as people in balloons become more and more desperate to get people on the ground to listen to them and follow them rather than the other people in balloons, they'll say ridiculous things that don't make any sense. They'll tell people to do stuff that's counterproductive, that gets them in trouble. Eventually, you would start to see the people in balloons as menaces, as really as something you'd quite like to avoid. And I think that's where we are. I think most uh, Working class people who don't go to college regard all of the people who talk as uh, people who are just trying to get something from them, who don't really have an interest in mm -hmm. helping them, and that they'd be better off avoiding. So hyperpolitics among the balloonists is always mirrored by uh, this, this desperate bid to get away from politics that still goes on, but it goes on among people we don't hear anything from. I think that's right, though. I mean, you know, those people on the ground, to, to use your neat image, uh, also seek ways to explain the world. I mean, you made reference also to kind of crazy ideas or conspiracy theories or whatever to also make sense of this world that is completely out of control. Um, so, I mean, the hyperpolitics would still be a reality on the ground then too, albeit it would take a different form. Um, it would be well, less. Well, it might be, you know, where do these sinister balloons come from and who's the puppet right. person who keeps putting these balloonists in the right. sky? Right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I like that. No, I like the balloon image. It's, it's, it's pretty useful. So um, to kind of uh, talk about the kind of flipping back to the international side of things, um, you know, your, your concern is with globalization, effectively. Um, and I think that's probably not a bad place to start politics. I assume that you see that as a starting point, as a kind of focusing on that, rather than necessarily being the sum total of um, your political vision or ambitions um, for the world. But um, I mean, it did make me think like, and I was thinking this kind of reading your book, whether, you know, the anti-globalization movement or alter globalization movement in some ways came too late and also too early, which is to say that, you know, the late 90s and 2000s was a time in which, um, you know, economies were still growing. Um, society had been, you know, greatly depoliticized um, through, you know, kind of neoliberal techniques of removing questions from contestation. Um, and because things were kind of going okay, um, no one was really paying attention. And so politics was um, done by those who were doing it for people over there. So that's what all the concern about um, development as crucially important as it was, um, questions of third world debt, um, completely, you know, still very much unresolved, uh, were, were, you know, kind of took the forefront. And in some ways, you know, it would have been good if that politics had existed in the 1980s, not in the late 90s and 2000s, but also 
you know, now might be a good time for that politics as well, one which would be grounded in um, a kind of uh, self-interest, um, a collective self-interest in uh, rich countries as well, not just for people over there. I mean, do you kind of, can you conceive of a politics like that? Is that something like what you have in mind? Well, uh, I certainly agree that globalization became an issue long after the point at which capital mobility had become too strong a structural lever for us to resist it through the mechanisms that people thought would be effective uh, in the 50s and 60s. In the 70s, the labor movement just really couldn't contend with all of that. Uh, And then by the 80s and 90s, it was a shell of what it was and and it was even uh, weaker from the standpoint of trying to to organize any kind of meaningful or effective resistance. At the same time, in the 80s and 90s, growth rates were still too high for people to really be uh, at scale interested in economically renegotiating everything. If anything, in the 90s, you had this period of enormous confidence in this system that would have prevented any kind of major restructuring. So yeah, I think the anti-globalization movement is too late in the sense it came after the point at which capital mobility was too strong to resist through conventional 20th century means, and too early in the sense that there wasn't enough misery in the 90s uh, or or acknowledgement of the misery that was occurring for there to be meaningful change. As far as what we do now, I mean, the globalization movement, because it existed at a time when the labor movement was so weakened, was not properly connected to that labor movement. And there was still, I think, uh, a, a very professional character to the globalization movement as a consequence of that. Yeah. Now, is it possible to get something that mobilizes a working class at this point, uh, you know, that even enables a working class to talk? I think that's a, a very difficult thing to imagine from here, uh, especially if we're thinking about trying to just start up labor unions in the way in which somebody might have thought about starting them up in the 1800s. And if you're trying to follow some kind of playbook, it's worth bearing in mind that the only way any of that stuff really got off the ground was through the world wars and the chaos that uh, they they caused. Even in a context where we had that lower level of technological development, lower level of industrialization, lower level of mobility, it required enormous disruption to actually allow all of those strategies and tactics to do anything really for working people. Uh, If not for the world wars, there's every reason to think that all of those strategies would have been largely ineffective and that we wouldn't be really any better off than we were uh, then, you know, in the Gilded Age. Yeah, no. So I'm, I think that it's it's this creative question of can we formulate something new uh, that, and I'm really not sure if we can, and it's something I want to work on for the, you know, the rest of my career in various different ways, and I hope I can get other people to also do it. If I can have any kind of impact on people who are uh, who think seriously about this kind of stuff, it would be let's just stop doing historical analogies. Just stop doing them completely. Stop comparing this time to other times and to stop trying to do strategies and tactics based on models from the past. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely right. Because really, what we're what this is much more like 19, 1846, I would say. So you know, that's that's why we should stop making historical analogies. No, I'm being uh, I'm being facetious. And we shouldn't I, do what they did then. Yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, I'm I, I'm completely on board with that. I want to come on to new ideas and where they come from in just a second. But um, staying on globalization, I mean, I think it's true that very often the biggest push comes when the door is already left a little bit ajar. And the past five, six, 10 years have been a story of leaving the door a little bit ajar on deglobalization. So 
um, to a certain extent, I think there's an opening that's still there, which, I mean, it wasn't there in 2007. So, um, you know, I, I cling on to that as my little bit of hope. Um, but I, I do I do generally think, I mean, we can look at failures, but ones which came from a position of actual possibility, however constrained, um, and that was, you know, Greece and, a, you know, 61% of the Greek population declaring that, no, we don't want to... Um, buy this shit anymore um we want out um or at least we accept the consequences of saying no we don't want this bailout again um uh, you know the brits saw through brexit um for all that it delivered a kind of a brexit name only a sense of no real change albeit outside of the eu now uh, but nevertheless there's kind of something there and it makes me wonder why you seem so downbeat when you say something like in the book, multilateralism is unlikely to succeed without the credible threat of unilateralism. Yet the credible threat of unilateralism destroys the economic credibility necessary to win elections and get a chance to pursue multilateralism in the first instance. Now, not to repeat the discussion about multilateralism and unilateralism, I, you know, I think we're, we're totally in, in agreement about the need for unilateralism um, to be wielded as a, as a threat and as a genuine credible threat. Otherwise, you'll get no multilateralism at all. And this is where the left is generally, generally very wrong on this, certainly the kind of Western European left. Um, but this question of losing economic credibility, well, yeah, but isn't any quote-unquote progressive or radical politics going to "Quote unquote, lose economic credibility amongst um, the media. I mean, isn't that isn't that just something that you kind of price in? That's going to be that's the that's the cost of of entry, basically. Well, I don't just mean with the media. I mean to the point where you can sustain the government across time. So, uh, if you do policy that causes so much economic disruption that the media is going to be able to frame you as irresponsible in such a way that you will then lose the next election, then even if you have done some pretty radical out there stuff, you aren't able to sustain it across time. So in the case of something like the UK, I'm really depressed about the UK. I'm really depressed about the UK because the UK did not really sever trade ties with Europe. The UK went to great lengths to minimize the trade disruption that Brexit caused uh, and the mobility disruption that Brexit caused. And to a very large degree, the UK is, is still trying to make itself a financial center uh, and to attract uh, capital through tax cuts. That is the conservative government's preferred way of trying to manage Brexit. So when I look at the UK, I go, this is a country that has done Brexit, but is completely desperate to remain connected to this system. It's not actually trying to get out of the system by doing Brexit. It's trying to use Brexit to give itself an aesthetic cover for remaining in the system. And I think this is what we tend to see in Europe. We tend to see states that look to create an illusion that they're exiting or trying to exit when they're trying to do a superficial exit that will allow them to stay in with less criticism from the public. Uh, and I think we see that, for instance, with Orban in Hungary, where economically Orban is, is totally deferential to European rules, uh, but there will be all of this cultural froth that he'll kick up to try to create the illusion that he's in permanent rebellion against the system. Uh, you know, similarly with, with Greece, yes, there was this vote you know, to go out, but now you know, Greece is under a conservative government that follows the rules or at least wants to make sure everybody believes it's following the rules. This is what I, I'm seeing in Europe. I'm not really seeing anyone actually pull the plug on the trade relationship. And even the paperwork that Brexit kicked up without pulling the plug on the trade relationship seems to have created enough inconvenience that it's hurt economic growth 
Uh, mm. you know, compared to the European states that are still in the EU, the British economy is not looking as good. And even this small change in British growth rates relative to European growth rates has led to a lot of instability with prime ministers coming and going and everybody coming in and going, I can make the Brexit thing work. And ultimately, we're not really getting uh, the kinds of real economic change that Brexit ostensibly was meant to deliver. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's where I would uh, no, express I mean, depression. I, it is depressing. I mean, I, I've said this before, but I find British politics today the most depressing in the world, or at least of things that I kind of follow and not in a kind of Congolese minds depressing kind of way or Brazil's lack of a future depressing or even like the US is going insane kind of depressing, just low key depressing. I mean, its own internal internal inward facing politics and media discussion testifies to the way that it's kind of just flipped back to a status quo ante of like 2015, um, even though they've gone through this massive constitutional change effectively. Um, yeah. I mean, I think- Because the procedures don't matter that much. Representative mm. democracy, it doesn't matter how you configure it. It doesn't work. Right. I mean, I, 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 the fact that you don't have, um, and here I'm, I'm kind of- ventriloquizing my podcast mates, George and Phil are very involved in kind of Brexit. But um, so I, I think I, I would be remiss if I didn't <laughs> try to do this, which is to say, you know, the the, the fact that they um, that elites now national elites are um, not answer not answerable to people outside, but only answerable to um, their own constituents means that um, even though they might be completely irresponsive right now, it means that there'll be a legitimacy um, vacuum at every stage in proceedings in a way that wasn't the case before where they could always go on, ah, but it's the EU making us do this. It's out of our hands. Now it's in their hands and they are pretending it isn't, but they're pretending. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think that it has created a governability crisis where these guys can't stay in office for any length of time because they can't deliver on the promise of Brexit. So at some point they will probably try to get relief from that by trying to get back into the European union. That's what I think they will eventually do. Mm. Uh, all, their alternatives to that are to actually pull the plug on the trade relationships and on the integration. And if they actually pull the plug on that, then there will be huge inflation uh, and they'll get killed through the supply chain disruption. If they do it gradually, there will be a ton of capital flight run on the bonds and all of that, uh, You know, if they give people time to respond to it. So I, I don't really see any particular way that they can make it work. Now, if the UK was a much bigger state with a much bigger economy, the fact that it's got a unitary system, if you could just transplant the British political system in the, into the United States, the United States has a scale advantage that might make it a little different, but there's no possibility of getting something that unitary in the United States. You would have to completely rewrite the American Constitution to do that. Uh, and there's no way you're going to go around in the United States and go, the British political system is a wonderful, credible alternative. You know, <laughs> we should have Westminster, you know, a Westminster model you know, with a unitary parliament. Uh, this, this is not going to fly in the States. Uh, so I, the, the biggest concession I would give to the reformer types is if you can really imagine a unitary parliamentary system that is heavily based around a single house with elections that are very likely to deliver majorities to a particular party. So with something like first past the post, you can envision someone winning with 35% of the vote, a stable majority. And then if you had the economic weight to throw around, you know, maybe if you're really big and really powerful, you might be able to get somewhere with that. Yeah. But even then, you're going to have to deal with the fact that you know, uh, other states will not necessarily have governments that are interested in cooperating with you. 
And there will be sizable economic disruption for anything you do, even if you do it in a really big, powerful state like the United States. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the paradoxes of politics today, but actually, the more I think about it, it's kind of continuous with the politics of socialism in the 20th century, um, certainly the first half of the 20th century, which is that to have the sorts of disruption necessary to break these trade bonds and reconfigure, if not the global system, because states um, bar maybe two states existing right now today would be able to reconfigure it in any significant way. Um, but, you know, at the very least, kind of domestically try to um, start to start anew, start afresh, um, and encourage other like-minded states to do so by the force of your example, or just simply by the disruption that's caused, that it spills out and config reconfigures the international scene in such a way that, hey, maybe, you know, Greece has left the Eurozone now, um, maybe Italy will bomb out too, and then suddenly things are moving very fast, right? It um, sounds a lot like how people used to th think about the third world during right. the Cold but, War. So, right. so this is what I'm getting to, right? Yeah. The problem is, is that these are weak states who can be easily crushed and the force of example pushes the other way. It doesn't push to like, hey, Greece is left. Let's do that. It's like, oh, my God, Greece is left. We could never do that because look how much devastation is being caused, even though what Greece is going through is the same levels of devastation, just a little bit more slowly and less dramatically. But anyway, you know, the force of example still yes. is there. Um, the What you need is a rich rich and powerful advanced state um, who has some leverage and acts as a bit of a linchpin to some degree in the international system, somewhere like Britain. The problem is, is that getting a country like Britain to um, undergo that level of disruption self-willingly without, without kind of the IMF or the Troika, the Eurozone, whatever, stamping on its neck is quite hard. And so this is one of the, you know, this is where we're back to the kind of discussions of, you know, well, you know, there was no revolution in Germany in 1918. And then, but if there had been, there would have been, you know, we need the leading states to um, undergo a revolution and you can't get that. So therefore it falls to the weak states in the international system. And you're back at discussing 1960s, 1970s politics again. So, you know, we're kind of still there. Yeah. We have to get back into thinking about what could you do to make these powerful states actually do something interesting. The states that are the most developed, that are the furthest advanced in this process that we're all going through, uh, not advanced in a normatively desirable way, but advanced, uh, what can what can what is possible in those kinds of places? And I think it is going to require a lot of real creativity and ingenuity and actually reckoning with what is what is actually going on in the United States, what is actually going on in China, what can go on between them. Uh, you know, I think that one of the you know, most straightforward ways you could get major system change would be for the United States and China to fight a war with each other in the Pacific yeah. in the next few years before all of the pipelines and railroads from China to uh, Europe and Africa have been built. You know, if the United States fought a conflict that completely destroyed Pacific trade, yeah, then you would have an opportunity to do something new. But for that to happen, you'd have to countenance something like that. And none of us could do that and feel good about ourselves or feel in the least bit like responsible actors for saying that something like that ought to happen. Yeah. So what we need is, is some more realistic path to a better world than that kind of mess, which is otherwise, I think, where all of this is headed. The only way I really think all of this is likely to end if we don't get really creative really fast is with the United States and China fighting a war that disrupts Pacific trade. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I wish I didn't, but I do agree. Right. So just to 
pick at a last couple of ideas from the book or things, uh, thoughts that are prompted in me. You talk about, you know, chronic crisis. That's in the, the title of the book. The system is stuck, um, but nevertheless, its support for democracy remains. And, you know, I think there's a reading of that, which is a, an optimistic one, which is or, you know, which sees in that um, a real gain, which um, there's no going back from that Americans all subscribe to democracy and that's um, not going to be shaken. And, you know, that that there's a genuine um Historical advance, I think, in, in the way that it creates a taboo on speaking the alternative, um, and I think taboos do testify uh, to a certain sense and uh, testify to progress, right? Um, but there's a conservative um, reading of that, or rather, there's a reading of that which sees in it a conservatism, which is well, we're going to be wedded to this system, and that there's no real thinking beyond that. Um, I would, I want to push this in a different way, which is that maybe we shouldn't read that much into that tacit support for democracy or even explicit support for democracy insofar as survey data testifies to it. Um, because you can say I'm in favor of democracy and be supporting uh, pretty naked authoritarianism. Um, and, you know, I can think just to draw from my own experience in Brazil or maybe not my direct experience, but Bolsonaro, you know, said he was running for to save democracy you know, against the left globalist, blah, 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 blah. Um, the 1964 coup in Brazil um, was called and remains called by a lot of the military a revolution and not a coup because they don't want to say coup. And at the time, it was justified in terms of saving democracy, saving democracy from the left. Um, and that was a, a, a coup, which was such a crucial turning point in the country's history that it uh, undermined any drive towards becoming an advanced country, which Brazil was on course to do at that time. So, um, my question to you is maybe are you not too um, complacent about American support for democracy and or even the fact that authoritarianism might come disguised in the language of democracy? Yeah. So I have a chapter in my book that's kind of focused around these arguments. Chapter three, which is the, the argument where I make this case that there really isn't any possibility of slipping into authoritarianism in the United States. What it really comes back to is this concept I have of an embedded democracy, a democracy that has lasted long enough that because it's all so old, it becomes really difficult to imagine changing the system. I don't think there are very many countries that have an embedded democracy. This is not to say that the United States is exceptional. I think, for instance, the UK also probably has an embedded democracy, but a set of democratic institutions that are very, very old, when you have institutions that are that old, that have outcompeted or outlasted many other political systems in many other parts of the world, there's this air of inevitability about them that shrinks the political imaginarium and makes it hard to imagine other ways of doing things and makes it hard to support some of the kind of mutation dynamics that we see in other countries where democracy is not as old or not as established. And so this is. One of the reasons I make the case for, for not making any analogies between the United States and countries that have uh, that don't have that kind of history. So this is not just an argument that the United States shouldn't be compared to, say, poorer states or states that are less developed or less advanced in, in capitalism than it, but also that it should not be compared to democracies that are not as old. Uh, and when I say not as old, I mean democracies that are not 200 plus years old. 
Now, when I say democracy, I'm not saying necessarily a, uh, what you would regard as a normatively desirable or good democracy. So, for instance, the fact that American democracy was marred by, say, slavery in its early history, uh, that doesn't change the fact that it's pitched as a democracy in terms of its legitimation mechanics. It was framed then as now as a democratic republic, and therefore it was framed in democratic terms. So I'm not saying that the United States is a perfect democracy or a good democracy or in any way a better democracy. In many ways, American democratic institutions are worse than those of younger democracies because it's so old, it started so long ago. And at the point at which it was created, you could do all kinds of things that we would now consider unacceptable. Same goes for the British Westminster system. It's because it's so old that it's so funky and so strange, uh, but also that makes it much more difficult to abandon or throw out. Now, the British political system, because it's unicameral and because it has an unwritten constitution, it allows for more procedural experimentation. You can try a wider variety of procedural reforms in the UK than you can in the States. Uh, but that's the other thing about the States. Because the United States is so procedurally locked down in that written constitution that's very hard to amend, the kinds of general over time changes that you might try to make in other political systems are much more difficult to make there legally. But then on top of that, you've got the embeddedness that makes it really, really hard to imagine even wanting to go somewhere that's analogous to some other system or some other state or place. This is, I think, the, the really undervalued and discounted thing about the United States and perhaps the UK and maybe some other countries that I'm personally not sufficiently an expert in to classify as embedded or not embedded that I would invite an area expert or a comparativist to think about. I mean, I'm trying to go through these and I'm trying to think of who <laughs> who these other old democracies are. I mean, yeah, maybe Switzerland. 200-year-old democracies. I don't know. You know yeah. well, France has got all those revolutions and, well, exactly. and all of those yeah. periods of monarchy and also throwing out the constitution completely in a period of insurrection, even if you replace it with a different republic, that's not embedded. You can't have five republics in 200 years yeah. and be embedded. That's what makes France different. Yeah, no, I, I think, but you're right that um, the cases are very, very few, um, if if at all, any beyond the US and uh, the UK. Um, I mean, it does sound to me like, you know, that meaning of democracy is a democracy in which, you know, that oligarchs or other powerful people won't be able to take complete charge of it. Um, democracy means negotiation for those who are wealthy and powerful, and that it's a situation which I will be able to negotiate, I'll be able to lobby, no one's going to take over and uh, act entirely against my interests. So I'll accept um, conceding a little bit of influence and power because we can share it. Um, so you know, I think it it remains a democracy in in that sense. Um, and that's what people yeah. a civil about. oligarchy in uh, Jeffrey Winters book mm. oligarchy, where he classifies the four types of oligarchy and says that representative democracy is a civil oligarchy and oligarchy laundered through impersonal institutions. That's what representative democracy is in the United States and in the UK. Yeah. Um, and certainly um, as they've become hollowed out over the past 40 years, um, that I think definitely has become the case. Um, you talk in the book about new ideas about a kind of an imagination failure. And you do that instead of suggesting um, a course of action or finding a solution, which I think is the right way to go about it. <laughs> but, um, but nevertheless, you know, we're kind of still stuck with this idea that there's, uh, there's no new ideas. The way that you call for new ideas, I think, took me a little bit by surprise, 
which is, um, again, I'm going to quote, revolution can't be delivered, uh, can't deliver a sanitized capitalism. It cannot deliver a democracy without hypocrisies or contradictions. A new political system would have to frame itself in different terms. It would have to make entirely different kinds of promises. It could not promise to actualize liberal ideals to accelerate what is already present. It would have to be a perpendicular alternative. Okay, so, I mean, that sounds to me like you're saying, well, we have to give up on what's called imminent critique. Um, and also of challenging the reigning politics on its own terms for failing to deliver that which it promises. Instead, you're saying we have to have completely new promises. Um, and that's, a, I don't know, that, that took me by surprise. And it also sounds like drawing a big line underneath the whole experience of the 19th and 20th centuries, and maybe even the late 18th centuries ago, right, we need something entirely new. Is that where you are with this? Yeah, we are way too haunted by history. We're way too haunted by historical example and thinking that we're like these other people in these other places and other times. It's in part because we're too aware of history. We know too much about it. We think about it and talk about it way too much. Uh, you know, it's it's funny because I went to Cambridge, which is a place that really does, you know, history of political thought and is very historically rooted. And uh, my supervisor at Cambridge, David Runciman, the thing he said to me that really change the way I think is, well, you know, it's all well and good to compare you know, the United States now to the United States in the 30s, or the United States in the Gilded Age or, or whatever. Uh, but what's different about now? And that has really stayed with me as the thing that I think nobody is really doing is what's different about now? What, mm -hmm. what is, is special about now? And I think at this point, I, we all feel this sense that everything in the culture is just a regurgitated version of something else. Even the movies are just endless remakes and regurgitations of other stuff. They don't speak to our time. They're all nostalgia trips. Uh, so I do think just like you know, we, we talk about in the 1700s, this, you know, oh, the Enlightenment, it drew a line other the, the scholasticism and the constant, you know, medievalist you know, analogies. People make this kind of a frame of, you know, there was modernity and there was antiquity, and, and you can make a, a distinction between a modern thinker and an ancient thinker. And that line was always a, a little bit uh, overstated. It was never the case that there was any kind of clean break in that way. But what people during that time recognized is that there was a necessity of trying to draw a line. You will never completely draw a line. You will never completely get rid of the past. But there was a, a, a need to try to think about these societies as different and distinct from the societies that had come before and to make that line. I think we need to do that again. I think in terms of what our intellectual task is, it's if, if we're going to do an analogy, it should be to the 1700s and to that need to completely uh, have a new epoch and a new line between now and, and what came before. So that sounds challenging, but also a lot more thrilling than a lot of the other possibilities that are, are around. I'm not sure entirely how um, we go about that. I guess, you know, you've said that the way out is through despair. Um, you presented your book on on the podcast that, you, that you're part of, The Lack, um, which I would like to give a shout out to I'm kind of an occasional listener, and I do enjoy it. Um, on that, you know, you talk through a little bit this idea of, of, you know, going through the pit of despair and maybe trying to come out the other end. Um, listening to that, it struck me that, you know, maybe the, the, the other hindrance um, is not a lack of despair, but a lack of boredom um, that we are continually entertained, no matter how stressed um, or desperate or miserable 
people's lives get. There's always a sense of entertainment. And in fact, politics to a certain degree provides that certainly for a certain class of people um, and that we struggle to be bored anymore. Um, and maybe those new ideas need to come out of out of boredom and maybe through the strength of repetition <laughs> of, of what we're fed constantly, that maybe we will reach a point where we're bored and start thinking about new ideas. Yeah, maybe we can wed boredom to despair. I think very often you can. I think very often when people really go into despair, it's in part because they've become bored with the failures of all of the things they've used to try to avoid it. I think in particular, when we're talking about people who work real jobs, they come home and they're, they're absolutely gassed, right? So at that point, you don't have the energy for leisure. You don't have the energy for some kind of constructive project. You've got the energy to watch TV. And part of how capitalism debilitates the capacities of the workers is by siphoning off larger and larger percentages of their energy so that when they come home, they can't do anything else other than watch TV. It's not as if that time or energy could go to politics, because by that point, there's a psychological depletion that means that it would be wasted in some form or fashion uh, to try to reconstitute the mind so that it can wake up the next day and do the thing again. Uh, and that's uh, something that I, I think in all of our politics, we should try to resist the uh, total sucking away of all time and energy by the instrumental system. Very good. Um, I would like to co-sign on that. I think that's very good. Um, and if there's one kind of little bright spark out there, I think is that we're discussing free time and the politics of free time a little bit more than we were before. And I think that's maybe a good direction to take things um, along with many others um, to generate some new ideas. Benjamin, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to say to listeners again, they should check out the book. They can get a copy, The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut. And Benjamin can also be found on the Lack, um, which I also enjoy. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. Thank you. It was. Yeah.